Alrighty, and uh, I, there was a bit of a mix-up on the slides earlier, totally my fault. Uh, our source text for today is actually going to be out of Genesis 1. Um, so if you've got your Bibles, I invite you to turn to that now. And I encourage you to bring your Bibles or pop your Bible open on your phone. It's good to have the Word of God in front of us. Uh, whatever I say today, I won't say anything more important or meaningful than what God has already said. So uh, almost all of our uh, work today is going to come out of Genesis as kind of a root. But some examples of how we get bombarded. I, I uh, don't know about you. I hate commercials, and I don't understand the philosophy of commercials. Uh, when my shows and sports get interrupted with a suddenly very loud commercial, uh, that does not fill me with love for whatever brand has suddenly showed up on my screen. It seems counterproductive. I'm now angry at Ford. I'm now angry at Vidal Sassoon or whoever had popped on. I don't want to go out and buy products. Uh, I certainly wouldn't normally go out and seek commercials, but if you can believe it, uh, in preparation for this sermon, I actually did do that to prove a point. And it turns out there are websites where you can just search for and browse commercials. I would have never thought that was a thing. I guess some people do that. Uh, but it turned out to be very useful for me today. I thought I'd pull a couple of examples of slogans and commercials that kind of speak to this constant pressure that we experience in the world uh, as the world tries to replace the core and essential parts of who we are and draw us down paths to pursue things other than what God has kind of called us to. So a great example is the idea of power and how power is communicated to us. Uh, for example, if, uh, if you as a woman want to become more powerful, Home Depot would like you to know that uh, when you give a girl power tools, she becomes a more powerful woman. A woman. Home Depot can help you out with that power struggle. Uh, Powerade uh, had a whole series where that, like every single flashing screen was more of this for me, more of that for me, more power for me. Uh, and a number of podcasts and commercials that I've encountered have started saying, this seems new to me, I don't know if this has been around for a while, but they literally are saying, there is nothing more powerful than you. Now, even if you're a beginning student of the Word of God, something should be raising up inside of you going, I'm not so sure that's the case. Another couple of examples um, about identity and being yourself. Uh, so many clothing companies will encourage you to express your authentic self, and the way that you can do that is to buy one of 50,000 jackets that everybody else will also be wearing. Somehow that expresses your authentic self. The TSA has been saying, because we all got to get our cards updated, I don't know if you've gone the real ID route, but I was in the line in Louisville to come out here this summer, and there's a sign uh, encouraging me to be my real ID self. I don't understand how that would even pass through a committee as a good idea. And, and everywhere, I, I encounter this word, it's, it's everywhere, be your best self. Um, people will do things that are extravagant, they'll spend a day on a boat and they'll take a picture of themselves and they'll say, just being my best self. This is it, this is all of me, this is the best of me, sitting on a boat in a lake, that's, that's all there is. The world is just constantly, constantly bombarding us with these sort of messages and perhaps more dramatically and, and more significantly as we walk through this season of explosive debate and dialogue on the issues of sexual and gender ideologies, something I hear again and again and again are people pleading. You can hear the agony in their voices. This is who I am. This is who I am. Why won't you accept me for who I am? This is it. This sexuality, uh, me as a man, me as a woman, that's, I almost feel like saying, is, is there nothing more to you? You know, there's something I feel like saying to people when we get into debates, and believe me, at seminary we get into this debate on a regular basis. I always end up taking door number C. 
as people generally line up on one or the other side of a, of a debate about um, homosexuality, I, I always feel like starting down door number C, which is wherever a person is and whatever they happen to believe, their sexuality is the, not the most essential part of who they are. And the fact of the matter is if you woke up tomorrow completely unable to experience passion or express yourself sexually, you would have lost nothing essential. God would not have suddenly lost track of you because you weren't sexual anymore. There are things so much deeper and so much more essential to who you are than just what you find attractive in the world. But it seems like so many people are buying the premise that that's it, that's all there is to it, that's who you are, and there's nothing more. So being bombarded with that constantly, I just kind of felt that I wanted to go after some truths from the perspective of God. Uh, and I'm going to be doing a series for the next three weeks, starting with the truth about who God is, what God says about himself, and then examining what that means for who we are. And this first week, we're going to be talking about creation. So again, going back to Genesis. But uh, before we begin, I want to just say a prayer here. So Father God, um, we pray that you would open our ears to hear your voice. Um, the word says you are spirit and we are to worship you in spirit. So whatever part of us, Lord, that you have created to hear you, or as Jesus said, to know your voice, God. We pray that you would stir that within us, that you would waken that up, God, that you would speak truth to us as we try to make our way through the many and loud and distracting voices of our lives, uh, Father God, to find our way back to the truths that you have been speaking to us since the beginning of creation. Father God, whatever I say here today, ultimately, Lord, I just pray that your spirit would be heard, uh, Lord, that you would speak your truth to each person in this room about the truth of who you made them to be. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. So I would argue that the world does not create for us a very good foundation for anchoring our identity uh, to. Our own desires, our passions, and our feelings are not a particularly good foundation either. The Word of God calls us to anchor identity to God's identity, which is unchanging and solid ground. Uh, in Matthew 7, the word says this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came. And the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. The word of God and God himself are the only sure and solid and unchanging foundations for us to anchor ourselves to. They are the most safe and most secure place for us to look for meaning and definition for our identities. And that's what I want to be going through here today. So the first point out of Genesis um, is just a reminder that God is the creator. I'll, I'll read this through. Uh, here briefly for us, and I'm going to keep coming back to it. Then God, this is out of Genesis tw uh, 1, 26, 28, and 31. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. 
and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. The opening chapters of the book of Genesis show us one of the most essential parts of who God is. God is a creator, and his creation is good. He has declared it so, and you are a part of that creation. The first point I'd like us to draw from that sense of who God is and from this passage in Genesis is the fact that you are God's very good creation. It's, it's interesting, a lot of the English renderings add that adjective, add very. All the other days of creation end with the words, and it was good. On the sixth day, God creates humanity, and all of a sudden, as he assesses the work of the sixth day, it's more than just good. It's very good. And I've highlighted a few lines for, here, for you here uh, to kind of start anchoring our identity based on exactly what God says. God created mankind in his own image. What a privilege and an honor to be made as image bearers of the creator himself. There are parts of God, of God's identity, of his goodness, of his nature, of his wisdom, of the truth of him woven into our very beings. That is infinitely more important than, say, sexual passion. Although sex is a powerful and amazing thing, there are things far deeper, like being made in the image of God. And God looked at his creation. He looked at us. He looked at Adam and Eve and declared as a master craftsman that they were very good. We are God's very good creation. There's a, um, I took a risk here this Sunday, and I don't know if it will have played off. I have never tried to embed a video into a slideshow before. We're going to see what happens. That is not video playback. Okay, so I'm going to describe to you what this was meant to be. There is a look that I have encountered, and I'm sure there's a version of this look across multiple cultures, but the best version of this that I have ever seen uh, tends to happen uh, among my brothers and sisters of African-American descent. It is a look that tends to be given when they encounter someone who is revealing or displaying something excellent. There's some great skill, there's some tremendous talent that nobody knew was there, and they get surprised by it, and there's this look. And so there's this commercial I hoped it played for us, but it's from like 2008. There's a McDonald's commercial. The family's sitting down for a meal, and the young boy comes in, and instead of just walking in and sitting down, he's dressed up in like this whole dance gig, and he's just dancing his way to the table, and he sits down, and he's dancing with his food, and he's just, he's just going bananas. And the family's just kind of staring at him, stunned at first, and then the father is the great person to watch. If you can find this uh, in a video, it's, it's phenomenal. But the expression of the father starts to change over time as he's like processing what's going on with his son. And then he throws him this look. This is the look. Now, if you, did not, if you did not know the context of this and you saw this look, you might think something terrible was happening. Like that, that could be disgust. That could be like revulsion, except that I have encountered this look in the midst of amazing moments where like people's giftings and talents have suddenly come alive. And I'll get this look from one of my brothers or sisters. I don't know, I just, I love this, I love this look. There's, a, there's an online uh, sketch uh, creator named Jonathan Bino, I think that's, I think that's his name. And he does this as well. He, he's, he's recreating a moment with a famous uh, blind musician. And he's, he's doing a skit where he's going around the studio. And every person he looks at, they give the same look. It's that look. It's that look. That's, I don't know what you would call that look. But it's like, to me, this look says, that is, what is that? What's going on right there? That's pretty good. That's more than, that's more than just like nominally good. That's very good. And, and I imagine there are times when God looks down at his creation when there's a moment when he's looking down and judging it as very good, when he gathers the, 
the angels around him and the wild mythical beasts of the throne room. And he says, look at that. Look at that. Except he's not just pointing at stuff. He's not just pointing at mountains. There are moments when he points at each one of you, his image bearers. And he says, look at her. Look at him. That is very good, what I've done right there. That's the truth of our identity. That's something worth anchoring ourselves to. There's a temptation in life to have to prove ourselves, to prove that we're good, to prove that we're worthy. And it can be exhausting, especially when the standards that we're facing change on a regular basis and may change from culture and community to community. It's exhausting to chase that stuff down. What good news to learn that we are very good by design, that at our most essential part, we are excellent. And we are excellent not because we had to earn it, and therefore we can't lose it. We're good because the one who made us is good, and we are his very good creation. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Here's a passage from Psalm that talks about this. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. You are part of that work. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained before me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God is a good creator, and you are his very good creation. You don't have to earn it. You can't possibly lose it. You are an image bearer of the King of Kings. But I'd like to temper that thought just a little bit. Not every thought that enters your head is going to be a good thought. Not every choice that you make is going to be a good choice. We're responsible for the decisions that we make, the words that we speak, the actions and the responses that we give in response to what the world throws at us. But at our inmost, most essential part, that part of us that bears the image of our creator, we are very good, and we are that way by design. So we are his very good creation. And we are also God's essential creation. Couldn't think of an image for essential, so we just have a jar of secret sauce. You are God's secret sauce in creation. Essential is an important word here. Not necessarily essential because God couldn't possibly survive without you, but because God had a vision for his creation. And you're not just an ancillary component. You're not just background noise. You're not just coincidental. You are an essential part of his vision for his creation. There was a series I watched uh, years back called Utopia. And it's one of these shows where a genetic genius decides that humanity is more or less a virus, a plague on the earth. And that the only way to really save and preserve the earth is to uh, kill off most of humanity. And so he sets out to do that. There's a group of people trying to stop him. But there's a moment when this uh, diabolical genius sits down at a dinner table with his family and he looks at his children and he says, what have you done today to earn your place in this crowded world. I remember seeing that 10, 12 years ago, and, and I could feel my inner self cringe, like I could feel my spirit shrivel at those words, and I didn't really understand it. Uh, but just the idea that children would be being asked to justify their existence, to earn their place each day, uh, or, or else they shouldn't be there, just, just crushed me. Well, fortunately, we don't have to do that. We have a place in this world, and that, too, by, is by design. We're not decoration. We're not coincidental. We are essential. There's another couple of passages here that kind of illustrate this for us. 
For we are God's handiwork, this is out of Ephesians 2.10, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The passage is interesting because in the verses just before this, Paul had just finished kind of admonishing the church, uh, trying to correct them away from the idea that we are saved out of our works, that our works produce salvation, that our works earn us something. He has just finished saying that's all nonsense. We're saved by grace so that no one can boast in their works. However, that doesn't mean we have nothing to do. That doesn't mean that the call after salvation is just to sit around and kind of write out the remainder of the fireball until Jesus comes again. We were created from the beginning with good works to do. If you remember, we were tasked with work. Adam and Eve were given a task in the beginning. We're still in that plan A season before sin and all the other stuff had entered into the world. And we have this tremendous glimpse into what God wanted for us and for his creation. And a part of that was to have Adam and Eve be the stewards to rule over all that he had just spent five days creating, to send them out into the world to be sovereign. That is what God wants for you. He wants you to be uh, his stewards of all of his creation. There is work for you here. It is significant work. And there is a place for you by design in his creation. Culture often tells us uh, that we have to find or invent a purpose for ourselves, that we have to manufacture a meaning for our lives. The world tends to celebrate, and you will see this in commercials and media, self-empowerment, self-obsession, self-glorification. The world tends to mock the idea of service and submission to anyone but ourselves, certainly not to some concept of God. The world tempts us away from the purpose and profound privilege of co-laboring with the creator himself. God calls us to walk in the garden with him, to join with him in the work of restoring and stewarding his creation. Humanity from the beginning has been given tremendous power and influence, a mantle sufficient to fulfill God's call to rule over all of his creation. But that's a gift from God for the purpose of serving God. We are not granted that power to serve ourselves, and we are not meant to glorify ourselves over God. We're called to use that power and that influence over his creation for his glory and for the well-being of his creation and for one another. You are a very good creation, you are an essential creation, and you are a cherished creation. So we had the worship team over to have a great meal. Uh, I I appreciate everybody for willing to sweat it out. We were in a room that wasn't well air-conditioned and it was about 7,000 degrees outside. Uh, But we had delicious chicken uh, and slaw uh, cooked by Abby and Aaron from our worship team. Uh, And I had been distracted in preparation for this event and suddenly realized that in about five minutes, Abby was going to be walking in the door and I hadn't even like cleaned my room. So I kind of like sat down at my desk to figure out what I could possibly do in five minutes. And I just started reaching for stuff to clean, to dust off. And as I was doing it, it occurred to me in the context of getting ready for a sermon that I was reaching for the things that were most significant on my desk. I couldn't get it all. I was, it was too late. I hadn't managed my time well. But there were a few things that just needed to be tidied up. I realized as I was dusting these things off that these are the things that I cherish most on my desk. And so I thought I'd take some pictures and and share them. This is a picture of my mother who passed away a few years ago. And if you can believe it, that's a picture of me at like five or whatever that would have been. I look at that picture every single day and I'm reminded of the gift and the blessing of family. I cherish that, that picture. This is my grandfather's pocket watch. 
Um, I inherited it from him when he passed, um, but it has really come to represent for me the blessing and the privilege and the resource of time itself. It's an interesting pocket watch. It, it doesn't wind for 24 hours. It'll hold about 19 or 20 hours. So you kind of have to stay on top of it. And it's become like a discipline foci for me. I have to be disciplined every day to remember to keep that thing wound or it'll just run out within a day's time. And so every day, once a day, I'll reach for it and I'll wind it up and I'll think and I'll talk to God about the gift of the time that I've had in a given day and over the time that I hope that I will have the next day. I cherish the time that God has given me. And this is a block with one of my favorite statements. This is not, well, I, there are passages that get pretty close to exactly that, but this is something that I hear God saying through the entire word, again and again and again, certainly through Christ, but even through creation and the way that he has cared for humanity. This idea that we are the beloved of God, and my dad got this for me because he knows I'm just I'm hooked on the stage. And in fact, there's probably a dozen of these little things in our house. One of them, Grandma Lisa, one of our Sunday school teachers got for us. Everywhere you look in our house, in the bathrooms, <laughs> there are these blocks that, to remind people that we are loved. Those are the, things, the three things that I reached for. Uh, and as I was uh, taking those pictures, I thought it might be an interesting uh, exercise to ask yourself if you had five minutes to clean up your house. Guests were going to arrive that were important to you. You wanted to honor them when they arrived, but you had five minutes. What would you clean? What would you tidy up? What would be the most important places in your home to make uh, welcoming and hospitable for your guests? Another similar example might be, and this is certainly relevant to all the fires that we keep having around here, if a fire was raging towards your house and you had 15 minutes to grab what you could, what would you grab? you'd probably grab the things that are most valuable to you, the things that you cherish most uh, in your life. We are cherished by God. He invests in us. And there are some moments, even in Genesis, where we start to see this loving, um, merciful, and generous part of who God is. Um, there's a moment when, after Adam and Eve um, sin for the first time, they suddenly realize that they're naked. And they become ashamed of the fact that they have no clothes on, that they're not covered. And in the midst of responding to the fact that his children have just sinned, have just broken the one commandment, the one thing they were asked not to do, they've done it. Uh, Jesus seems to, or God seems to stop and realize that they're experiencing anxiety. Now, he could have just been furious. The, the mood of that moment could have just been anger towards his creation. But he seems to become distracted for a moment when he sees that they're miserable, that they're naked and they're ashamed and he relents for a moment, and he makes clothing for them. Now, it's interesting as you read the word. I have read that moment in Genesis more times than I can count. It was never interesting to me that he made clothes. It just, that whole, the whole theme of that section was, it just seemed to be full of grief and frustration. Oh, shoot, Adam and Eve, you had one job, and you didn't do it. Um, but then he makes them clothing, and I, I found myself thinking this past week, why? Why did he do that? They didn't need clothing. He made them without it. Now, that's a wild thought. I don't know if that's literal uh, or figurative. Um, but what he made for them in that moment was not something that they needed in the beginning. And he didn't need to cover them from his side. It wouldn't have done any good anyway. He knows them inside and out. He created them. Why did he make that clothing for them? I think that was a, an act of loving kindness. I think it was a merciful move to cover their shame and blunt the edge of their anxiety, even as he was dealing with them in frustration. Something rose up in the spirit of God, loving them, cherishing them, even in that terrible moment 
No, and it just like it just piles up in your head. You think about all God knew was going to come from that moment of sin, all the disaster, all the pain, all the suffering of, and brokenness of the world, and and that desire to cover them and shelter them and soothe their anxiety still welled up in God. We are we are not just essential automatons. We're not just furniture. We, we are cherished and beloved. And I think even in that moment of taking a break from admonishing them and covering them in grace and love, that reveals that, that cherishing heart. And I find that to be uh, absolutely remarkable. Luke 15, 3 to 7 um, expands a little bit on this heart of God that cherishes us and loves us and pursues us. So Jesus told him this story. If a man had a hundred sheep and one of them got lost, what would he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that has lost until he finds it? And when he finds it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and have not strayed away. Luke goes on to tell a story that I've decided, I think we have time to share in full. This will be something that you've heard before, but I think it's such an important illustration of the way that God cherishes us, that we are his good creation, we are essential, but we are cherished and we are loved. This is Luke 15, 11 to 32. It's the story of the prodigal son. And he said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now that's devastating. If you, if you think about what an inheritance is, that's what you get from your parent when they die. So for a son to come up to a living parent and say, just go ahead and let's get that out of the way now. I mean, you're as good as dead to me anyway. So why don't I go ahead and get my inheritance? That's the attitude of the son towards the father. But the father amazingly does it. He divides his property between his two sons. Not many days later, the young son gathered all he had and took a journey into the far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the county who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And for a, for a Jewish person, that would have been absolute misery. Pigs were totally unclean animals. That's about as low as a Jewish person could conceive of getting. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. He was so hungry that the slop he was feeding these pigs looked appetizing to him. But no one would give him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired slaves. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father spots him. He sees him and feels compassion and runs. He tears off down the road to embrace his son and kiss him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. But the father said to his servants, never mind that. Bring quickly the best robe and put it on my son. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate for this is my son. He was dead, and he is now alive again. He was lost, but now he is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his oldest son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, 
he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, your brother has come home and your father has killed a fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he had answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property and, pro and with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive now. He was lost, but he was found. That story is full of extravagant love of a father who cherishes his son, a son who had gone about as far relationally as you could to divorce yourself from your parent. And still he bore that love for him. And there is just a spectacular parallel there between the prodigal father and the love that God bears for us, despite our sins, in spite of our sins, that way that he cherishes us. It doesn't matter what you've done, how many ways you think you've failed, how far you've fallen. This is how God feels towards you. He stands ever ready, waiting for you to turn towards him. And the moment you do, he doesn't wait. He runs to embrace you and call you his own beloved son, beloved daughter. You are cherished in God's eyes. The world often puts us in a position where we feel we have, we have to come up with a way to prove our value, to establish our worth and finally earn the approval of others. The affections and care of the world are costly in their demands and easily lost if we do not continually conform to ever-changing demands and ideologies. Not so with God's love and affection. He cherishes us from the beginning, though we had just been made and could not have possibly earned that love. He loves us. His love for us persisted through our sins because it was never contingent on any of our performances or the things that we might think we deserve. And that love, that cherished affection of God remains with us today in the form of Christ's hand always reaching out to us, inviting us to come home to him. You are his good creation. You are essential to the world he wants to dwell in. You are cherished and have been since he wove you together in your mother's womb. For God so loved the world, he so loved you, his creation, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have life eternal. So we're gonna take communion together, which is a remembrance of Christ's sacrifice. He instructed his disciples to do this in remembrance of him. We take it uh, the, the bread symbolically represents the body of Christ and we believe in a mysterious way that God understands becomes his body. And the wine represents his blood that has been shed for us and becomes his blood as we participate in this sacrament. This is available to anybody who calls Jesus Lord, who is following him or anybody who wants to. Uh, you are welcome here. The way we do it is we have everybody come down the center aisle and then we go back out the outside so we don't have a traffic collision. We're gonna hold on to the elements and once we all have it together, we'll take it as a family. So please feel free to come forward.
Father God, we thank you for the precious body and blood of your son, Jesus Christ, this profound example of how far you are willing to run on our behalf, of how far you're willing to reach to bring us back from the brink of that unyielding, divinely stubborn love that you bear for all of us. Oh, Father God, we thank you for that gift. Help us to better understand this mystery and hold it before us as we walk into the world, as we are confronted again uh, with all of the attempts to reframe our identity, to tell us we're not who the word says we are, we're something else, or we need to reinvent that ourselves and figure it out for ourselves, God. Help us to cling to these truths, this reality, who you say we are. In Jesus' name we pray these things, amen. If I could have you all stand up, I'll pray us out. Father God, thank you for the gift of fellowship. Thank you for an air-conditioned room to gather, to praise you, Lord, that we have the privilege in this country to do so without fear of persecution, Lord. We know that's not true for all of your children right now. God, we pray for your hand and your providence and your faithfulness in the lives of those who pay an extreme cost for declaring you are king. And make us good stewards of the gift of this peace with which we still celebrate you in our homes and in our churches. Go with us into the world, God, and that we may proclaim the truth of who you are and who you have made all of us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.